The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to read Genesis 3. We're going to read the whole passage through the sermon. I'm going to read um, kind of the first half and the last quarter of this uh, for the sake of time, and then we'll get into this together. Here we are, Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you, sure, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both them were open, and they, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He, that is God, said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave, gave to be with me, she gave me the, tree, the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And then down to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take uh, also the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. God, as we look at this famous story and consider all the dynamics going on here, this is where we see the beginning of the curse that we experience. So God, we pray that we would see amidst this story your merciful presence and your merciful promise for us. And I pray that we would be clothed with mercy this morning for the sake of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. For some reason, um, we continue to be surprised that the world is broken and full of sin. <laughs> and that humans are inherently flawed. Uh, I was 
reflecting on this dynamic just in the fact of like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the Ellen show, like it's been like forever on TV. Um, and then suddenly, oh my gosh, there's a toxic work environment. How could this possibly be? And the show's canceled. Like we're suddenly surprised that, hey, maybe things aren't the way they appear. <laughs> maybe things aren't always as great and glamorous as they are. The fact that we meet in a recovery center underlines the fact that we live in a world that is broken, right? If, if people weren't broken, they wouldn't have addiction struggles to, to recover from, and this place wouldn't exist. I mean, we, we sit in a place that is marked by the brokenness of the world. And as we've been preaching through the book of Genesis, um, we get to the part where we get the uh, get to the point where all of these broken things in the world begin. This is where things start to break. Um, and it can be a little bit disappointing because you're kind of like, man, I really liked all that Genesis, like God is good and look at how great this world is and how wonderful this place is. And here we are, we're barely three chapters in and things are falling apart. Like I, I wanted more of that stuff. But here we are. We are in Genesis 3. We're about five sermons into this series, and we're going to be spending um, up until the summer to get through Genesis 11. And then for the rest of the year, as we preach through Genesis, we're going to move through things a little bit more quickly. And part of the reason is that these first 11 chapters in Genesis really do break down how the world was made and how the world got broken. And this is what we're engaging here this morning probably one of the more famous passages. Like we're engaging all these stories of like the the seven days of creation, Adam and Eve and the snake and all that happened there. And then we're going to get over here. You know, next week, Peter's going to preach for us on Cain and Abel, the first murder in the Bible. And then after that, we're going to get into Noah's Noah's Ark and the flood. And then after that, we're going to get into the uh, the Tower of Babylon. These are all like famous passages. And they're famous because each of them captures one dynamic or another in which the way the world has gone wrong. And so what we're engaging with is the first of several fall stories. Like we call this the fall, but this is just one of a few that happened here in Genesis 1 through 11. So the first one that we're looking at here is with Adam and Eve at the baseline level of humanity and how we have just been fractured from the inside. So here's the main point of what we're looking at. And then we're going to just walk through this story in kind of four stages, so to speak. The curse is fatal, but not final. And the call of this passage for us is to clothe yourself in God's mercy. What we're going to see through this passage is that there's a lot of interaction, a lot of dialogue. And there's basically four main characters. You've got Adam and Eve, the serpent, and God. And through the midst of all of these, there's three of those characters that change and one of them who doesn't through this story we can get, get we're going to get into all what was going on with the serpent and adam and eve but through this story god's character and his mercy is highlighted as unchanging god is the only person through this entire story this whole chapter that does not change but who he is and how merciful he is in a context that changes reveals how good he truly is because these characters are all going to screw up in one way or the other and all that does is just shows us more of god's good heart and his mercy towards us so here's what we're going to do we're going to pick up here in verses one to six we're going to see sin's fog verses one to six we're going to see sin's fog Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God has made. Now, I want to pause here and just kind of draw in what exactly is going on here with this snake. 
I know this is like a big feature of, of when I talk to people about either Christianity or something like that. They're kind of like, yeah, but you guys have a book that starts out with a talking snake. Like, what's up with that? Like, is this like, like, what's the deal with the talking snake? So what's the deal with the talking snake? I want to start out by just recognizing that for the original readers, they would have understood this in a particular way. We read this and we say, well, that's Satan. Well, the Bible actually doesn't tell you that it's Satan until like close to the very end of the book, Revelation 22. Um, I hate to break it to you. The folks who had Genesis originally written to them did not have the book of Revelation. That doesn't mean that that, that conclusion of Revelation is wrong, but what, the way they read this helps us to understand kind of what's going on here. So two factors, and then we're going to drop into the word snake here. So I want to remind you, we talked about Eden, the creation of Eden as being a temple. Like this, they would have understood this as God building a temple where we see that replicated all through the tabernacle and the temple building. And in the temple of the ancient world, there would have been God's court of angels that would have been walking around. So, for example, in the temple that, that Solomon builds, the curtain has angels woven into the curtain. And so there's a certain expectation that in Eden, it's not stated previously, but I think that there's reason to believe that angels were just kind of a part of the culture and they were just walking around. It was this meeting of heaven and earth. And then the other thing, we talked about this this past summer, and I can get into this um, in the Q&A if you want me to, but um, this idea of the divine counsel just kind of fills that out a little bit better. That if you look through other parts of scripture, you get the idea that God has, as he has put humanity to govern the world, he has created a realm of spiritual beings who govern the spiritual world, and that is the, those are the angelic figures that are kind of in play here in this story. So, again, I realize that that might be a strange concept for some of you, um, and it's not a hill I'm going to die on. However, I do think that it's a part of how this passage plays out. So, let's look at this, uh, the word serpent. Now the, now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. The word serpent there in the Hebrew is nashish, N-C-H-S-H, kind of a, a very rough translation. The most literal reading of that word is snake. The problem with Hebrew, so to speak, is that there aren't any vowels. So you just have consonants, and you have to supply the vowels in how you translate words over. What that means for us in this situation is that this is a highly symbolic passage, and there's a lot of meaning going on with each of the words that are chosen. And so, for example, nashish is the most literal translation into snake. However, if you kind of adjust the verb slightly, you get the word diviner going on here. And in the ancient world, they would have understood snakes to be a guardian of um, their god's temple uh, throne and a dispenser of divine wisdom. So, for example, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, from uh, the Babylonian context that Israel finds itself in later, a snake is uh, a picture of the divine being who strangely enough, is a part of helping Gilgamesh get fruit from the tree that will give him eternal life. So it's a part of, their, their, of the religious landscape of the ancient world that um, snakes were associated with dispensers of divine wisdom. Another thing going on here, if you just slide the, slightly the, the verbs again, or the vowels again, just kind of finesse them slightly, you have a word that's used later in the Bible to describe bronze. And when you, when you shine bronze, it gets super shiny, and bright, shiny beings are represented throughout the Bible as being 
divine creatures, divine angels that, you know, in the heavens and all that sort of stuff. Now, the reason I'm pointing out all these things is when we to use it to kind of help us see there is a wordplay going on here in the word nashish that we just have translated into snake. There's a triple entendre, so to speak. So there's three different ways this word is being used. And I think all of them are supposed to kind of be in our poetic framework as we understand what's going on here. So, for example, when you use the word, I know some of you are runners. When you use the word running, you can use it as a noun. Running is good for you, is a, is a good form of exercise. Some of you would debate that. <laughs> but running as a noun is a good form of exercise. That would be like translating that shush as snake. So just a very straightforward reading. The engine is running on diesel, right? Translating as a verb, right? There is a, the running has a different form that it means. And so that would be like reading the nashish word as a diviner, somebody who dispenses knowledge. Or, for example, as an adjective, running paint is on, is an eyesore. Running paint is an eyesore. That's an adjective, right? That's like reading it like bronze, like it's shining. That's like translating it like it's describing something going on here. So when we read this, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. We're supposed to read this and see there is, it's not just a talking snake that's going on here. Eve is interacting, Adam and Eve are interacting with somebody that is a divine being that should be trusted to give good and godly knowledge for them, to help them understand God's ways, and somebody who's brilliant and who's very imposing, Right? So later in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul describes Satan as an angel of light. There's a similar idea going on here. It almost as though Paul read this through this lens here, that Satan was a divine being, an angel of light that should have been trusted. It's very likely that Eve had talked to this person before, that there was some sense in which they had interacted before, and that he was a trusted figure almost as though it was like a religious figure that you should trust what they say. <laughs> I, I say all that to say, when we read this story, we can be kind of like, Eve, give me a break. There is a talking snake in a tree hanging out and just kind of like you know, wiggling its, its tongue to get you to eat an apple. <laughs> like, how ridiculous. That's not what's going on here. This would be like, your pastor, or somebody that you have a high re degree of respect for, for helping you understand who God is and how to follow him, suddenly finding him, le leading you into destruction and sin. This is somebody that she should have trusted. Because I want to read this so that you get into the story and see, oh, I have some sympathy for what's going on with Eve. She's not just getting kind of like suckered by a talking snake. She's getting deceived by somebody that she's deeply trusting of. So when we read through the story, right, you can begin to get into the fog of what's going on. That's, what, that's why I just kind of draw all this out. So let's kind of pick up here then in verse, the rest of verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that there was to, it was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, this is where the fog of sin gets so tricky to kind of think through because there's a lot of half-truths in here that the snake or whoever, the, you know, the Satan, the character here, is presenting. You're not, you won't surely die. You, you can touch these. Did God really say, for example, that you can't eat any of the trees in the garden? Did God knows that when you want to, that he wants you to be like him and to be like him and to grow in the knowledge of good and evil. Like God wants you to be like him. Why would God prohibit you from eating from a tree that's going to get you that? It's these kind of half-truths that he gets into where it gets very tricky. But you notice here at the beginning, what is he saying? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So I think what's going on here amidst all the ways in which God's word kind of gets twisted is that God's motive gets questioned here at the very beginning. That's where the fog of sin comes in. Right. Eve, right. It's interesting. Did you notice that when Eve responds, he's like, you can't eat from any of these trees. How mean of God. And Eve's like, no, no, no. We just can't eat from this tree. Um, and we can't touch it. She's already beginning to kind of like question her. What did the God's word actually say? She's stumbling and remembering exactly what God's. It is a bit of a precarious situation to say, like, you can touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and not eat it. But that's still what God's word said. You can't eat it. It's not that you couldn't touch it. And then what's interesting is that so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, you'll remember, if you remember from chapter 2, that's exactly what verse 9 says is true of all the trees in the garden. They are good for food and a delight to the eyes. They were good-looking trees, and they were good-tasting trees. But what she does, she then goes on and says, to be desired, she goes the next step further, that it was desired to make one wise. She had fallen into this fog of saying, okay, well, God wants me to be like him. God wants me um, to be to follow him, and certainly this person knows God better than I do, he said that I should probably eat this. God was just trying to test me to see if I actually want to be like God and not be, and, and, and grow to be like God. So let me take this fruit that I'm not supposed to eat <laughs> to be more like God. It gets very confusing. It gets very tricky. And that's where this fog kind of comes in. It's, I just want to read this in a way that we feel a bit more sympathetic for Eve's situation, because this is the way we all experience sin and weakness in our own lives, right? We, <laughs> none of us wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I, I really want to break the Ten Commandments today. Ten Commandments, good ideas. I can write them better. God, I really think I'm just going to, I know that Jesus is true, but let me make an idol and worship it in Jesus' place. Or I know that Jesus is true, but you know what? I'm really feeling like lying about my neighbor today. Like nobody wakes up and does that. It is all small degrees of, well, I don't know. Like God's words clearly tells me to, how to follow him. And it's very basic and obvious. But this situation seems unique. And God really doesn't quite understand my situation. And if only 
suddenly you start thinking, maybe I can figure this out. And it all comes back to, am I going to trust that not only is God good, but his word for me is good? That comes back down to the basic of what is so confusing here about Eve's situation is that she is ultimately, her and Adam, are led to question, is God really good? Right? That is the core of the temptation of what's going on here. When there's a shadow in our minds over God's goodness, the fog of temptation makes it harder to see the world quickly. At each point, Adam and Eve should have been like, no, 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 stop. God's word clearly says this. See you, Satan. But he had gotten a hook in them with, is God really giving you his best? Which remind, which I think one of the things that's interesting here, of course, it's, it's fascinating that, you know, did Eve get the fruit and then go take it to Adam? The Hebrew text is very obvious. Adam was with her there the whole time. He too had God's word given to him. It is an illustration for us of why we need a community of people to submit to God's word together because sometimes life gets so confusing that we just can't quite see the world clearly and we can definitely flip to the pages of the Bible that we want to read and the pages and avoid the pages that we don't want to read. We need God's word and we need to trust it in a community of people that we're committed to. The man did not defend the word of God. He was there, and he did not take seriously what God said. The woman heard God's word twisted and fell prey to a twisted interpretation. What lies are we falling prey to that are contrary to God's word? This is why I, this is part of the reason why we do Q&A after the sermon, just as a way of immediately responding with, okay, I heard you say this, is this what you mean, or can we clarify this? But this is more importantly why I think it's helpful, it's essential for us in our life together to have a committed group of people that we are looking at God's word with and saying, here's my life, here's God's word, help me understand these things together, which is why we have our small groups. Those are incredibly helpful for this very reason of being able to say, I know that some of your small groups are a little bit more, um, some of them are more lively um, (laughs) with some some uh, interactions on questions, and some of them are a little bit more kind of uh, group-oriented, kind of life updates, but they really are, in this broad sense, intended for us to be a place where we can say, here's what God's Word says, and here's what my life is, and I need you to help me do these together. This is where we can help each other fight the fog of sin. Now, we're going to move on to verse 7. I know it's a strange word, graces, questions. It's a bit of a tongue twister, but you understand what I'm going for. Grace, graces, questions. We're going to pick up here. We have just seen how Adam and Eve have walked into the fog of temptation, led by somebody that they should have, likely understood. We can understand why they would have trusted him. And now the fractures are beginning to show. Then the eyes of both were opened. They've eaten from this tree. By the way, in Jewish interpretations of this, it's a fig tree. In in historic uh, Christian interpretations, it's an apple. The reason that Jewish interpretations say it's a fig is because then they clothe themselves with fig leaves. They're like, well, they just would have clothed themselves with the tree they just ate from. Doesn't matter. Not particularly sure which tree it is. That's not the point. I just addressed that because each of us are having an image in our head of what tree they're eating from. (laughs) 
Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that is the Lord, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God called to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Here we begin to see the fractures that are happening all over the place. It is... Um, it's tragic when you begin to think through the first, the beauty of what we've seen in chapters one and two and how God has made us to live in such good union together. And yet here God shows up. I mean, can you imagine the incredible privilege of hearing the Lord walking around? I, I can't, like, just the beauty of that image and the destruction of what he's walking into is just, it is amazing to begin to kind of think through, like, what, what was that like? Like, what did that sound like? Clearly had a distinct, he clearly had a distinct cadence of some kind because Adam knew, knew what God's walking sounded like. And here he walks in. Adam, it's that woman you gave me. <laughs> some of us will quote this jokingly in our marriages. It's that woman. And the woman says, it's that snake. And here we have brokenness all around. They're ashamed of each other, and they blame each other. They're ashamed of themselves, and they hide themselves. Whereas the end of chapter 2 was they were naked and unashamed, free and vulnerable with each other. Here, they are not only afraid of themselves because of what they've done, they're afraid of each other, and they hide. And most severely, they hide from God. I think it's interesting. I want to focus in here in a second on these questions that God asks. I've traditionally in my life read these as something along the lines of, what have you done? They're accusative. I've read them in my head as accusative type questions. And unfortunately, that probably is the way I, I ask those types of questions in stressful parenting moments in our family. What's wrong with you? Which does not communicate grace to anybody. My wife's laughs are just judgment over me right now. Um, I think these are God's compassionate questions. You notice he's not accusative. God, first of all, walking into the Eden, we know from the rest of the Bible, God's omniscient, he knows what's happened. Like he's not surprised. And yet here he comes in and he says, the first words out of God's mouth in this situation, where are you? Now, is God kind of like Adam? Typically, we meet here at this tree. We've got the mark. We've got BFF written under it. No. I, there's a part of this where God, he is the supreme counselor coming in. Where are you? What's going on in your head right now? What's going on in your heart? What is going on? God does not accuse anybody. You'll notice if you read through this, these are four questions that God's asking. Where are you? What have you done? Did you do what I told you not to do? And then he asked to Eve, where are you? 
He's asking, he's probing. This is an indication that not only is God walking into the situation because clearly they're best friends and they like to hang out, but God is continuing to pursue people that have in this exact moment rejected God. Here is a picture of what we see through the rest of the Bible. When God pursues us, he in, he is, his questions are inviting us into himself. Right? You almost begin to wonder, what if Adam and Eve had just said, here's what's up. How would the story have been different? Would it have been different if they had said, God, we ate from the tree that we told you, you told us not to do. I'm sorry. How would the story have been different? But because they've chosen to write their own rules and to write their own law for themselves, they can't do that. They must blame. They must deflect. God is still inviting them into himself. And when he asks us questions, he is inviting us to be unveiled before him. And it is painful. But it is a painful that is a pain of confessing our sins to a God who invites us into his own healing. It's, I want to read from Hosea 6, if we could, for a second. Hosea 6, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord, for he is going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains, the waters of the earth. The Lord is inviting us when he is questioning, where are you? He is inviting us into his grace. Interestingly enough, Hosea 6, just over in verse 7, it mentions Adam's fall. It's almost as though this is a picture of God's heart that we begin to see here in Genesis 3, that we, begin to, that we see played out through the rest of the Bible. God's pursuit of us is not, he's not afraid of our sin. He's not afraid of our weakness. He's not, he's not even pushed off so that he can't continue to enjoy our presence. This is, as a small comment, a way which we can be a community of grace to each other. When we have our friends and our family in Jesus that are stuck in sin somehow, what have you done? Not helpful. Just say from a lot of experience. Where are you? What's going on? Where's your head at? There's an invitation that I'm with you that you're for each other, and that you're going to find God's grace in the situation. Rather than being after somebody, you're with them, just like God in the story. Let's pick over here, verses 14 to 24. I'm going to read all of this for us, and we're going to get a few comments, and then we'll kind of swing to a final, final point. We're going to see death's consequences here in verse 14 to 24. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Remember, just as a comment, when Jesus says later uh, in Luke 11 that he saw Satan cast out, this is a similar type of dynamic. It's, it's, it's a throwing into the earth from somebody who should not be there. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plant, eat the plants of the field. But the sweat of your face, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and out of it you were for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in, know, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat, of it, and eat it and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden and placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Obviously, there's three curses that happen here. There is the curse against the snake, the curse against the woman, and the curse against the man. The snake is the one who has no, uh, that is utterly judged, completely condemned out of the presence of God and sent back into the earth with a final judgment upon him. Eve's is, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, I assume that this is more than just, hey, uh, pregnancy is going to be painful. I think that this is probably a poetic allusion to the pain of family life in light of the curse. There is, we're going to see how the pain of Eve, who's birthed children, will then watch those children murder each other. There's more to this than just, hey, it's going to be, it's going to hurt real bad. Like, that's not what's going on here. I think this is. There is a relational strain that comes out of her life-giving um, image-bearing, which is what you see. You des- your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is not a commendation, for example, that all men rule over all women. This is a re- basically a reference to you guys are going to be butting heads, and you guys are not going to be seeing each other as image-bearers, and this is going to be painful for a long time. This is a relational break. And then to Adam, God gives this huge command of basically, because you have forsaken my word and listened to the words of another, you are going to have to then toil and sweat and bleed to bring forth fruit from the, from the ground. Basically, work's going to be hard. <laughs> like, this is why work is not fun, because of this. It is, however, a mercy... God had said, if you eat from this tree, you shall surely die. And in the Hebrew, it's die, die. Like, you're going to be dead, and then I'm going to dead dead you again, kind of thing. (laughs) And here, again, we see God's mercy. I'm going to give you a curse, and death will be shot through all of these aspects of your life. But they're still walking and breathing, and they walk out of the Garden of Eden alive, which is itself a mercy. They're sent and driven out of God's presence. Death only exists outside the presence of the Lord. All right. We're going to pick up here, and we're going to pull this all together in mercy's hope. You guys cool?
verses 15 and then 20 and 21. This is, um, let me read these for us and then we'll kind of give some thoughts on this. I will put enmity, this is God's curse to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. This is what's called in big theology talk the Proto-Evangelion. This is the Greek word evangelical. That's what that means. This is the seed. This is the, the earliest mention of the gospel in the entire Bible. Ironically, it's spoken in a curse and judgment against the snake. The beginning of the gospel is pronounced in God's words as a judgment against Satan and death, effectively. There is no mercy for the, for the snake provided. It changes focus, though, from the snake and his offspring, so to speak, and Eve and her offspring. So what's the snake's offspring? Death. Satan and death, so to speak. And Eve's offspring is life and victory. You change, it changes the focus now in the story to who is, the, who is this son? Who is he going to be? And you're going to see this over and over again all through the Bible. It's going to happen here in verse chapter 4. It's going to continue to happen in Abraham. It's going to continue to happen in Isaac. It's going to continue to happen in Jacob and Moses and David. Is this the son? Is this the son who's going to crush the head? Is this the son who's going to crush the head of the, the, the serpent? Satan's offspring, death, will bruise the woman's son, but he will destroy death. And then over in chapter, verse 20 and 21, I just find this so fascinating that Adam's response to this whole situation, I don't know if you've ever gotten told off, like I'm sure you have, but like, like when you're like, when you've been called to the mat on something, you're kind of like, yeah, I really screwed up. This was me. I'm sorry. Like Adam's response is to pick up on the good stuff that God said. Like of all the things that God says in all of those verses, he looks at that and he says, okay, I know this God. And he's promised that she will give birth to the son who will destroy our enemy now. I'm going to pick up on that and focus in on that. And so that's where Eve's name comes from. Uh, incidentally, she has not been named in this story up until this point. But Adam's naming of Eve is an act of faith and trust in the mercy of his God and the promise of God and the character of who God is. Eve is named because she is the mother of all living. And it is just fascinating to me that Adam's act of faith in the midst of this whole situation, I mean, he's, he's literally written like the first story of how to screw your life up. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to focus. I know this God. I know who he is and what he's like. Adam responds by prioritizing belief in God's promise to Eve or to, to Eve and the snake over everything else. Basically, um, Eve, at naming her Eve, God, Adam is saying, things are going to be hard, but God's promised a way of life through you. And then we have this small little verse, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. It's fascinating to me 
that they had tried to clothe themselves in the midst of their shame. And God says, I'm going to do something better to cover your shame. And it comes at the sacrifice of another's life. You'll notice that it's the skin of an animal. So God is the first person to kill an animal, to skin it, to provide covering and care for another. If you sung enough songs about Jesus, you're going to be picking up about here is the seeds of all that we get in Jesus and in the gospel, right? God's promised, I'm going to give you a son to destroy your enemy. And then for you in the midst of your, your sin and shame, I'm going to cover you and provide for you. You need my mercy, not what you can provide not what you can clothe yourself with, not all the things that you can come up for how you can posture and cover up. You need my mercy. You need my care. You need my offering. You see, he promised to provide a healer in the midst of their shame of sin and disgrace. He has clothed them by the death of another, a substitute son. This is the beginning of the rest of the story, of God's story in Jesus. This is where the gospel begins to show us that God will substitute him in our place for the gift of God's mercy and hope in our lives. Interestingly, I want to point back here to what God said to Adam. Verse 19 by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and out, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In the gospel, we now have the bread of life given to us by the sweat and blood of another man who was put into the dust on our behalf. So that in him coming out of the ground again, to be the new Adam, the fully raised to life Adam that we now have grace and mercy from, he gives us this bread of life by his own efforts. Not something that we earn, not something that we've proven our worth for, but he feeds us at his own cost and expense so that we can experience the sure, confident mercy of God. I hope that you've seen as we work through this passage, we've talked about how the curse is pretty bad. Understandable and how they got there because we are also marked by the curse. But here in the midst of the scene of absolute destruction, the snake, Adam, and Eve have all changed for the worse. God has not. His mercy his grace, his compassion have only been highlighted in technicolor neon lights to show how good he truly is. So as you go this week, as you go this week and you, get, you continue to experience, I am just a broken person. This, ver this passage, as famous as it is, invites us to clothe ourselves with mercy from this God who continues to pursue you. So let's pray. 
Father, as we've looked at this passage and considered how good you truly are in the midst of this horrific scene and all of the tragedy that unfolds, I pray that you would help us to experience mercy again. And as we take communion today, that we would experience the goodness of mercy given at the cost in the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.